This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to the Book Riot Podcast. It is Monday, August 14th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. Jeff is out this week. I'm here with Book Riot's managing editor, Vanessa Diaz. Vanessa, hello. Hello. Thank you for joining me bright and early in your West Coast timeline on this Monday morning. We have had some technical difficulties. <laughs> we have, as happens to us like once a year or so, uh, a monkey threw a wrench into things. Jeff and I recorded a whole episode on Thursday, and it had no sound. <laughs> so we're back. We're taking a mulligan which I guess is appropriate. Jeff will be in Scotland for part of the week. Yeah. And um, I'm delighted to have you here. Thanks for pinch hitting with me. Of course. No, happy to do it. I'm happy that I remembered to drink hot tea before joining you because it is indeed early over here and your girl has <laughs> mad vocal fry in the mornings and it was not cute about 30 minutes ago, but we are all set to go Have now. you uh, Have you been doing all your vocal warm-ups? I have. La, la, the, la, la, la. In the heat <laughs> that is Portland because it's the tropics here today, but I digress. I feel you. Yeah, it's I mean, we're deeply in truly the dog days of summer here in the South. It feels like the dog days of publishing too. not a lot of big news, but a lot of like um, news that feels like the equivalent of standing outside on a humid day. Yeah, that's what we're gonna go with. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's how I'm feeling about what's going on in publishing lately. Um, just for folks listening, Kelly Jensen, one of our editors will be here with me for next week's episode. And the week after that, we'll be dropping in an episode of first edition. Uh, where Jeff has conducted an interview with a bookseller named Josh Cook from Porter Square Books in Boston. He has a new book out called The Art of Libromancy that's all about the, it's an essay collection about the kind of the modern state of independent bookselling. Uh, really interesting book. Josh is a really interesting guy in Porter Square. If you live in Boston or have had a chance to visit, is a really terrific store. Um, that's going to be a great conversation and that'll be dropped into this feed in lieu of a new episode here in a couple weeks. So y'all will hear from me at the top of that show. But we're just rounding out summer vacation season, uh, taking care of having guests and other interesting things for you here. While Jeff is out, I'll be out for I think one episode in early September. And then we'll be, you know, back to school back in our seats saddled up for big fall book season. Uh, before we get into the news of the week, let's take a break for our first sponsor. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, Vanessa, you as the managing editor have led, supported, created space for a really terrific years long now set of coverage around censorship that Kelly, who's going to be here with me next week, uh, has led the charge on and really become one of the leading voices, if not the leading voice in coverage of book bans in both schools and public libraries over the last couple of years. Do you want to tell us about why we're extra proud of Kelly this week? Yes, this is so exciting. I'm actually quite glad that I get to be on the show for this, even if it didn't work out, you know, the way it was supposed to. But um, yeah, so after a resolution was submitted by the Louisiana Association of School Librarians, the LASL, um, the American Association of School Librarians has commended Book Riot's weekly censorship roundup, which is by Kelly, essentially just recognizing it for being one of the you know outstanding programs, events, and products that are being recognized in this year for support of librarianship and just the school you know librarian profession um, as a whole. And this is I, I'm so proud. I mean, honestly, that's the simple <laughs> so way to well put deserved. it. Um, I'm going to throw myself on the sword here and admit that uh, many moons ago, when Kelly first suggested that we make this a regular roundup, I said. One of the stupidest things I think I've ever said at Book Riot was like, yeah, absolutely. But like, I wonder if we'll have enough to talk about. Oh, and if only. I, yeah, like, what was I thinking? I mean, really, I guess I was <laughs> trying to be hopeful for the future. But <laughs> let's all, uh, yeah, just really gather around and giving Kelly all of her props here. Because, yeah, this has been some really dogged coverage. It's it's not easy work. It's time consuming work. It's work that, um, yeah, because there really weren't a lot of other people doing it that people have come to us both to recognize the work that we're doing. And by we, let me fully say it's mostly, you know, Kelly and also Danica, but also to like, okay, well, can you talk about this too? Can you talk about this too? Because the reality was that a lot of people weren't talking about it. And so folks, Mm -hmm. you know, send a lot of it our way and the parsing out of all of that information, you know, rounding it up so that people are fully aware of like what's going on in their communities and communities at large, as well as actual like contextual analysis of all of that stuff, plus next steps and like toolkits and like how to fight censorship. It's not easy work. It's work that she does, um, yeah, weekly and, and in a way that I don't think many people could, frankly. <laughs> and yeah. it's, yeah, just really, really great to see her being recognized in this way. I think dogged is the perfect word for it. The details of these things are both so like mundane and gross and familiar, mm-hmm. but also there are enough little things that differentiate each one from each other one. Yes. And Kelly is able to find those and pull out why each one of these is significant, not just because anytime someone is trying to ban books, it's significant, but the the very specific uh, cases the and how they fit into this bigger trend of, you know, the right wing, like the far right wing organizing mm-hmm. and using uh, censorship in schools and public libraries as a thin end of the wedge to have just more control over public education and the public conversation in general. Uh, you can see the weekly censorship roundup on the website on Book Riot. We'll put a link into the show notes. And you can also subscribe for free to Kelly's newsletter, Literary Activism, literaryactivism.substack.com. 
that goes out every week uh, with deep dives into these stories, what we like to call Kelly Explains It All, uh, and also uh, ongoing links to places where you can get additional information and continue to educate yourself. So just super proud of Kelly. Um, This is a very well-deserved commendation. And it also seems like there's really like no size of award (laughs) that could really uh, accurately convey how important this work is that she's doing. But we're glad to see it happen. Yeah. Very proud. Uh, All right, Vanessa, where do you want to go here? We've got a trio of AI related things we could talk about. (laughs) We could get into the biggest publishing story of last week. Or we could talk about some weird stuff happening on Book Talk. Let's start with the AI stuff just to kind of get this out of the way because, wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So AI, I think it, this is going to be one of the ongoing stories of this year in publishing, yeah. probably the next several years uh, in publishing as well as in workplaces in general. But how technology that can generate words or you know c- crawl words from the internet and combine them in new ways um, is going to impact an industry that's built on putting words into novel orders and selling them to people. Uh, It's just really a a giant ongoing question. So the first of our stories here is that AI generated travel guidebooks have just like taken over Amazon. (laughs) They have. This, I guess, shouldn't be terribly surprising. Nonfiction I think is much more ripe for disruption by AI or interruption or whatever you want to call it, um, because it doesn't require the same, necessarily the same kind of creative generation that fiction takes. Like you are repeating facts, you are putting them together in new ways. But one of the very first use examples that I heard of when ChatGPT came out was like, you can ask it to give you an itinerary for a trip, because there are so many suggested itineraries for popular places already on the internet, that when the bots go out and they crawl the internet, there's just a rich field of material that they can use to, you know, recombine it into, here's how you should spend five days in Utah going around the national parks, which like is an itinerary that I asked ChatGPT to put together for me. And then I compared it to my Lonely Planet guidebook, and it was pretty similar. Um, Mm. But these you can see at the top of this New York Times piece, there's a photo collage of these covers, like of the book covers for all kinds of places. Yeah. (laughs) They look like a marriage of what you would expect to see on like a Lonely Planet or a Rick Steves cover. And also they do have a flavor of like someone just learned how to Photoshop. Yes, that. (laughs) So what's happening here is somebody, uh, Mike Steves is the the fake (laughs) author name of at least several of these, like kudos, Mike Steves, that was creative, Uh, is having AI generate travel books, and they're listing them on Amazon um, with presumably fake reviews. They're listing them for cheaper than the like Rick Steves goes for twenty five forty nine is uh, in one of the examples, and the Mike Steves version was listed at sixteen ninety nine. This travel guide for France, and so shoppers are looking at a bunch of great reviews. They're looking at this cheaper price point, and they are. Buying books that turn out to be disappointing. Yeah. I just, 
<laughs> my brain is going all over the place here. There is a point, part of me that looks at these and goes, okay, maybe maybe I'm being too snobby and they do actually look like some of the travel guides that I've seen. The other part of my brain is like, this absolutely looks like somebody hopped into Canva. <laughs> and like, I guess maybe if you're used to looking at this stuff the way we are, you're like, oh, mm. this might look a little sus. But if you're the average person, like the person who's mentioned in this particular piece that we're looking at um, from the New York Times, who's not maybe as practiced in that sort of thing. Like it is a bummer because the deeper we get into these, you know, Rebecca's experience might've been relatively quote unquote positive, you know, when looking up like your itinerary, but it sounds like the contents of these books was like very, very (laughs) cutty, pasty. Like you should go to the Eiffel Tower (laughs) Um, in a way that's a bummer for people who spent money, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, so the New York Times piece is by Seth Kugel and uh, Stephen Hiltner, and it opens with an anecdote from a woman named Amy Kolsky, who is 53, and she's saying that the book comes, the Mike Steves Guide to France shows up, and it, quote, seemed like the guy just went on the internet, copied a whole bunch of information from Wikipedia, Mm -hmm. and just pasted it in. And that, my friends, is how generative AI works. Yes. (laughs) It goes on the internet, it copies information, and then it functionally pastes it in or changes changes a few of the the word orders it, it puts them together in new combinations so it feels that way because it is that yes. way uh you know ai apps can produce text they can produce fake pictures there's all kinds of complicated stuff here going on and the ftc has not come anywhere close to offering helpful regulation mm-hmm. that can protect consumers in this situation so the question here really is i think two pronged of is Amazon going to do anything about yep. these? Will uh, should it? Yes. Will it? Mm. Shruggy man. Yeah. Um, and in the meantime, you know, pieces like this from the New York Times, I think, go a ways toward educating consumers about what to look out for. Um, but we're still, it's still so early in the life of generative AI. And you know, like often when we talk about a new technology, I start thinking about the gap between my openness and familiarity to something like this and like what it would take for my parents to like be aware of yeah. AI. Like if my dad went looking for a travel guide to France, he's a smart guy, he lives in the world, all those things. But would he look at these covers? and think anything looked fishy would he know that mike steves is suspiciously close to rick steve (laughs) (laughs) yeah because that's the other part right is that his bio if you read it it sounds like incredibly legit like if you don't know anything about rick like it it is it is well written enough that you're like oh that you know touts how this guy's like a a very well-known travel writer who's received lots of accolades and has you know written for some pretty prominent travel stuff so if you're just your average person right you look at that like okay cool (laughs) and if the new york times or the today show or like, you know, big mainstream news weren't telling people, hey, this is stuff you have to look out for. I don't think it's reasonable to expect, as you were saying, like the average consumer to know yet that this is a thing they need to be on the lookout for. So this is a big, interesting piece in the Times. You can dive way into it, um, especially if you're thinking like, what are some ways that I can tell? Like they go into helping you identify, like what are some tells of a fake review? What are some tells of a fake, you know, AI generated image? Um, There's stuff like if there's two people in the picture and they're like, they're supposed to be, you know, talking to each other or touching, you can look and see, are they not quite touching? Yeah. (laughs) There's all (laughs) kinds of stuff that like I would never have thought of. Yeah. Um, it is really interesting. And this, you know, this kind of reporting is going to be, I think, the first wave in consumer education about this until we have some kind of hopefully useful regulation to prevent it. And 
And, you know, there's probably no preventing people attempting to use technologies in this sure. way. So it will come down to regulators either, you know, penalizing folks for profiting off of it or really retailers like Amazon deciding that it's not something that they want to be affiliated with, which given the story, this next story about <laughs> <laughs> Jane Friedman does not make me terribly hopeful for Amazon's activity. Why don't you tell us what's happening there? Yeah, so as Rebecca mentioned, there's a woman named Jade Friedman who um, essentially has had to have or has asked Amazon to remove a ton of books that were generated by AI but for sale under her name from the site. You can read more about this in uh, this piece in The Guardian by Ella Creamer. Um, so yes, there is a um, this woman named Jane Friedman who has sold and written several books about the publishing industry. I think Publishing 101 and one that's about like the business of being a writer, I believe. And was made privy by uh, another person basically that like, hey, have you, there's some other books on the internet that say that you wrote them <laughs> and they look a little different. And so of course, you know, she did indeed find out that this was the case that a bunch of books that have been falsely attributed to her that um, A, have very long <laughs> SEO capture titles that are basically like, how to write a book and make lots of money off of it in X many days um, that, yeah, are not written by her period, right? So there's there's that. But then, yeah, that are AI generative um, and obviously not she feels ripped off she says it's it's not you know mm -hmm. fair for folks to to come to what she you know she's put a lot of work into the books that she's written and to now have other stuff attributed to her it is obviously unfair and so she's had to go to amazon and say like hey take this down um i believe they did but it's, it's a <laughs> yeah speaking well, to what rebecca said earlier <laughs> about like of course in all the pieces that we have about ai that i'm staring at there is of course a fully throated section from amazon saying like no we don't allow this of course we don't this is against our policies etc 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 but but <laughs> it's yeah, where i'm they landing did, on this. the but is that amazon did remove it but not the first time the first time around. you're right yes the first time that friedman complained about this to amazon and asked them to remove the books they told her that they would not because she hadn't trademarked her name oh that's right i forgot about that part <laughs> uh. <sighs> the yeah. books did end up being taken down from both Amazon and Goodreads, which listeners of this show know is owned by Amazon. Oh and Friedman God. suspects that it's because she spoke out about this on social media. I suspect that she is right. Uh, and she's calling here for Amazon uh, to develop a procedure of some kind for reporting this activity where someone is trying to profit off of someone else's name mm -hmm. uh, and to, to um, for Amazon to create a way to verify authorship. Um Jane Friedman, as you were saying, Vanessa, is a well-known industry expert. She's been blogging about the publishing industry since 2009, was yeah. one of the first professional blogs I started following. We've talked about her insights on this show many times over the last decade. And I am sure that this is happening in every other industry, you know, that there oh, are, sure. you know, music experts and technology experts and anybody else who is a well-known name who has a ton of material online, because like, that's one of the reasons that she was vulnerable and she recognizes it here. She's been blogging since 2009. Yep. That is a ton of publicly available material for AI models to be trained on. And to be really clear, those AI models, like nobody sat down at OpenAI, like let's just use ChatGPT as the example, and was like, dear ChatGPT, please go train yourself on Jane Friedman's blog. 
<laughs> specifically. But it's on the open internet. You yeah. know, Book Riot is on the open internet. If you go ask ChatGPT to give you a summary of Gone Girl, there's a non-zero chance that some of that summary comes from something somebody wrote on Book Riot, yep. something somebody wrote uh, on the New York Times website or any number of other public places. It's just the deal. If it's out there publicly, currently, AI models can train themselves on it. Uh, and you're especially vulnerable, I think, in this combination of a well-known, respected name. So the question really is, like, who are the um, who's doing shenanigans here that's paying close enough attention to a specific industry to know the name of a respected person and then do an AI generated book or five or 12 um, on that same kind of material and use that person's name? Um it's kind of it's weird to think about that happening, um, but there weird. we are. <laughs> I, keep, I, I let me be the last one to sit here and quote unquote defend <laughs> Amazon from a lot of things, but I I am sitting around thinking about the people whose job it is to figure out what to do <sighs> in this particular situation, especially since you know part of their whole appeal for folks who do want to choose the path towards self publishing is that they make right. it easy to just go on and and do all that, and obviously and having to add a layer of protection for established authors to be to, to ask people to actually verify their identity in a meaningful way is going to be a thing that <laughs> drastically changes the current yeah, model was, and like the scale at which they're that. having to do this is just like uh <laughs> the only the only kind of similar system i've experienced was like booking an Airbnb for somewhere out of the US and having to mm. submit a photo of my like, you know, the photo yep. page on my passport to Airbnb to prove who I was and that I was like, you know, legally allowed to leave this country and go into that country. And I, I think we might be moving towards something like that, or that Amazon so. might need to be considering something like that if they are looking for meaningful verification of here's, you know, who this person is. This person, first of all, is real. Yeah. Like, does Mike Steves exist? <laughs> <laughs> the photo of Mike Steves, I implore you to please go find for yourself. <laughs> well, it also feels like, I mean, that's turtles all the way down, right? Like, yeah. is whoever is sitting in their basement generating AI travel books, <sighs> are they also generating an author photo of a fake Mike Steve? <laughs> With a what is apparently a half a, what is it a partially formed earring? Yeah, uh, there's just this like floaty piece of what I thought was flesh and was extremely grossed out by. And I know oh, anyway, yeah, this is a whole like tur turtles all down and into the crust of the earth, but super just weird and tricky stuff. Um, probably not the last we'll see of this, but I guess on the top line, you know, it's not great that Amazon wouldn't take it down the first time around. Mm -hmm. It's weird if the expectation is that you have to have trademarked your name. Yeah, uh, that's like, uh, hopefully that's not where we go in terms of <laughs> regulation. Um, that's also tricky if you have a common name, like if your name is John Smith, you better exactly. just hope you're the first one to get to the trademark if that. <laughs> Yeah. That's what it depends on to be Oof. able to protect your books on Amazon. But, um, you know, they got it down after she made it public. And hopefully that is a lesson to them um, to be, you know, moving on something like this. You would think, especially from the Goodreads side, like fake reviews are a problem. Amazon mm -hmm. has taken steps both on Amazon and Goodreads, especially Amazon, to indicate Amazon. verified yeah. purchases. And they'll show you if a review is being given by someone has, who has actually bought the book or the sweatpants or whatever it is that you're thinking about buying. That seems to go, you know, away here, except like, 
if you're trying to scam everyone, you could, you know, launch a bunch of email addresses and buy a bunch of copies of your own fake book and write a bunch of fake emails. Like this also feels very complex. I wouldn't want to be the Amazon person no. trying to figure out how to do it. But Amazon does employ, you know, some of the best yes. uh, tech workers in the world. So, so yeah, because apparently there's also a loophole where in like if you offer it as an ebook and you're offering it for free, like that counts as a purchase. So mm. that can be a verified reader. Like, yeah, I do not envy these people's jobs, but yeah. that's why you get paid the big bucks, people. <laughs> it's going to be interesting to see how that goes. And then it may be <laughs> the most obviously misguided use oh. of what I'm not even sure is AI, but AI adjacent stuff. This story was over just about as fast as it yep. started last week. A new website called Prosecraft launched. It is now taken down. So you'll have to read this Gizmodo piece by Linda Codega um, and just listen to us talk about it if you want to know about it. But the, the TLDR is a guy named um, Benji Smith who runs a, uh, another website called Shakespeare, but it's S-H-A-X-P-I-R. <laughs> Take <laughs> yeah. that in. Oof. Yeah. Breath. Breath. Okay. Got it. Uh, yeah. Pro it created this voice, uh, this uh, website called Prosecraft that into which he had uploaded the full text of over 25,000 books. So first, like this is Benji's first misstep because those books yep. are fully copyrighted material. Fully. And his idea was upload all this material, create this library of data. And then if you are a wannabe author, and let's say you want to write a book like, um, I'm just looking at this top example, the first tweet here is a book called Hungers as Old as This Land by Zach Rosenberg. So let's say you loved Hungers as Old as This Land, and you want to write a book that's similar to it. Prosecraft analyzed the text of a book for the total words, the vividness of the language, whatever that means, the use of <laughs> passive voice, the use of non-LY adverbs, which is really interesting, LY adverbs, all <laughs> adverbs, other stuff, all kinds of other like, like nitty gritty analysis of what are the words that go into this book. And then you could upload your text of your novel and it would say, here's how you need to change. Like your book is only in the 25th percentile of vividness, but hunger's as old as this land is in the 80th percentile of vividness. So make your language more vivid. How do you do that? Who knows? <laughs> Orders but of vivid magnitude. <laughs> Prosecraft would tell you how to do that. Now, Benji Smith launches Prosecraft. He starts tweeting about it. Authors like very quickly discover that their books have been uploaded to this and are very quickly upset because they didn't give permission for their copyrighted material to be used here. Benji Smith takes it down. Prosecraft no longer exists. That has run its course. But what I want to talk about, Vanessa, is... <laughs> Actually, I'm like, where, where are you going to go? <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. Where do we you, will chime where in. Do you want to go? <laughs> I just, A, was really dying at the tweets. Um, where it, of course, authors are like, yeah, no, take my ish the F down. And his response to one Jeff Vandermeer, <laughs> like Jeff Vandermeer, is like, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you don't want your book included, just email me at Benji at Shakespeare.com with a link to your book and I'll remove it. And he's like, no, take all of my books down, you weirdo. <laughs> I'm not going to email you like, and these are my, this is the Southern Reach trilogy. Like I, that, that just tickled me that he was like, yeah, just, just send a quick little email and it'll be fine. Um, but I could go on for so a little long time you. about yeah. a lot of this stuff. I was just like, my yeah. brother in Christ, what, what are we doing here? 
<laughs> that is my central question. Like, this seems to me to actually be kind of in line with a lot of the other reasons that I'm not that worried about AI ruining yeah. publishing because it fundamentally misunderstands, like, how especially fiction works. The idea that. Yes. If you want to write a book like Gone Girl, what you need to do is make it have the same number of words and the same percentage of adverbs that don't end in L-Y and the same amount of vivid language, whatever the hell that means. And then you will be like, like, like if you could match your prose to the same stats that Gone Girl had, then you would have a book like Gone Girl. Then you would be a writer like Gillian Flynn. Which is just fundamentally whacked. Like, it's not. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like, writing is craft. There are certainly skills that folks need to learn. You'll be Mm -hmm. like, you need to have a command of grammar and understand vocabulary and how the English language functions. But writing is a craft. And to try to reduce any piece of art, this is like if I uploaded a portrait of my mom, which would be terrible. I have zero artistic skills. And it was like, what you need in order to be similar to the Mona Lisa is more... More muted tones, you know, like less eye contact and like More there's there's no way. Yeah. Yeah. It would I'm not even sure it would be marginally better if I made those changes. It would just be bad in a different way. Yeah, just slightly less bad. Uh, creatively bad. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Like if you start off you know, far away from Gillian Flynn, and you make all the changes, I think you end up with a book that is still just as different from Gillian Flynn, just in different ways. Like now you've used the same number of adverbs that that she has. Great. And (laughs) like, technology people imposing ideas of technology onto what art does I think actually really protects how art functions. Like this gives me, I was already not super worried about at least what this current round of AI technology was going to do to like, to real quote unquote, like to the real quality of books and reading. You know, like these AI travel guidebooks are not great. Rick Steves' job is still safe if you want a good one, you know, (laughs) like he's doing okay. Gillian Flynn gonna be okay. And I think I'm just waiting for like, the first time someone even comes close to getting it right on how to use something like this for a tool for writers or authors. But this was this ain't it. This is not it. It's just like the the part that you were just uploading people's copyrighted work full stop is like, we we could have just ended there. Like, I don't understand the rest of it. I am admittedly like, I am of two minds. I am both a super curmudgeon about anything that has to do with art in this way. And so I know that I get on my little high horse about the fact that I find AI super annoying in a lot more ways than not. But I also have like colleagues who have been like, look, I use ChatGPT to make my life easier in these XYZ ways, which like I understand mm-hmm. that there are really helpful parts of a lot of the technology that we touch in daily life that has nothing to do with art um, that do make people's lives easier. And so I understand that. And I also am similarly not worried about the quality because I I just don't think you can ever distill a craft in that way. Um, You can hit all the markers, you can have the adjectives and the adverbs and stuff, but it's just such a personal, creative 
endeavor that I, I don't think you can whittle it down. And if you get yeah. close, like, I guess we'll see. I I don't like the deluge and like the work that this creates for people, mm-hmm. like the work of having to undo it and like keep, you know, yeah, so now somebody has to track down all this stuff on Amazon because there's that flooding of the market. Like what are submissions going to look like, which I think I've said on this show too. Like what if yeah. you're getting flooded by this? That part, I just, again, I'm such a curmudgeon about but as far as the actual art itself, I, I, I'm not worried about that. Like you said, I think we're a long ways from being able to duplicate, you know, some I mean, Jeff Vandermeer's voice. Uh, but, right. But yeah. It Layers. reminds me of um, in my freshman English class in high school, we had read The Great Gatsby and then we had read some one of the Hemingways. And I think that's pretty typically like pretty typically Fitzgerald and Hemingway are paired yeah, against paired. each other in a compare contrast situation of Hemingway, you know, very spare, short sentences, mm-hmm. Fitzgerald you know, things run on a little more and there's flowery language and blah, blah, blah. And then one of the assignments was like, pick one of these topics and write a short story in the style of either Mm. Fitzgerald or Hemingway. And like ninth graders did better than AI would have done, I think, (laughs) based on use short sentences, use adjectives. Be spare. Don't be spare. Yeah. But those those inputs are not enough, whether you're putting them into ninth graders or an AI situation to like to generate a good work of art. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's, yeah, just not great. All right, let's take our next sponsor break. And then we will talk about big news. Okay, so big news of the week, we really kicked off last week with this news uh, that Simon and Schuster had been sold, Paramount agreed to sell Simon & Schuster to a private equity, fir- private equity firm called KKR for $1.62 billion. Um, long journey for Simon & Schuster after the years-long attempt to sell itself to Penguin Random House was nixed by the DOJ. Uh, they took a $200 million uh, kill fee for that. That deal was originally supposed to be, I think, $2.1 billion. So mm-hmm. Paramount's still coming out with a, a slightly lower valuation here, even if you count that $200 million kill fee. But $1.62 billion, not a small amount of dollars. Uh, what we know so far, this is not KKR's first rodeo in no. books and publishing. They previously acquired a company called RB Media that did a lot of audiobook publishing. Um, they very successfully built up that company and sold it off um, in a way that it the employees. So let me back up. When our when KKR took over RB Media, uh, employees got equity stake in the company, mm-hmm. and then when KKR spun RB Media off after several years, that was such a profitable sale that all of the employees got bonuses, sometime up to the equivalent of two times their annual their salary. salary. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so KKR has done this successfully. Now KKR, like most private equity, also has some shady stuff. There is a book called Barbarians at the Gate that you can read about, you know, some of the less savory things that KKR has participated in. Uh, They also were the acquirers and spin downers of Toys R Us. So it's not always acquire something, make it better, spin it off. Um, But it looks to me like they are going the positive direction with this Simon & Schuster acquisition. They're keeping most of the top brass at Simon & Schuster. John Karp, who's the CEO at SNS, says they plan to invest in us and make us greater than we already are. What more could a publishing company want? We don't know if Simon & Schuster employees are going to get that same like equity offer that RB Media employees got. But it looks to me like KKR sees value, Simon & Schuster 
made a lot of money last year and over the last couple of years, and that KKR wants to capitalize on that. Uh, now, it's not always all good news, though, when acquisitions happen. So I want to give you a minute here for your take, Vanessa. Yeah, I, I spent, I, re- I reread this piece probably like three or four times, <laughs> just mm-hmm. because I was trying to get my brain around all the different elements. Yeah, my my portion of this was definitely knowing the less savory parts that KKR was bringing to the table um, until I read this. There's, it's complicated, right? Like, on the one mm-hmm. hand, a company that is not already, you know, obviously in the publishing industry means that we're not further consolidating the publishing industry, which is already very small because of how few publishing houses like currently exist in this form. Um, The chance of giving employees that type of equity is could be like a game changing model that I'm like interested to look at. Um, The fact that it isn't Again, going back to the publishing thing, company means that they don't are potentially anyway not looking at as many consolidation consequences that you would normally see mm-hmm. when two publishing houses merge as far as like needing to let people go and restructure and lay off, etc. And if they are going, like I think RB Media is um, also, I didn't know this, the company behind, I believe, Overdrive, they mm-hmm. um, said in the piece. And so, you know, Overdrive and Libby and all of its affiliates have obviously done some major stuff for digital reading in libraries yes. and schools. There's so much going on and it's stake here that I'm I'm just I guess really curious to see what the like next steps are I I, my brain breaks a teeny bit it's kind of having to weigh it all I think you know I think that's like uh, the right kind of response to something that is as big and as complicated as this because it's the easiest thing is a one note reaction and the one note reaction to a private equity acquisition of just about anything is like oh my god private equity is evil and those headlines are certainly going around we've talked in recent weeks about you know the criticism and activism that exist inside the publishing industry of the publishing industry that are really Mm -hmm. criticisms of capitalism and capitalist forces. And there's not a version of this sale of Simon & Schuster to some entity that I think makes everybody happy. Oh, absolutely Um, not. (laughs) It is better. I I think that we can almost universally agree that this is a better or more desired outcome than seeing Simon & Schuster be sold to HarperCollins, which was also in the bidding here. That would have been, as you were saying, further consolidation. We'd be down to the big four Mm -hmm. in publishing rather than the big five. It would have almost definitely led to layoffs, fewer opportunities for authors. Now, like, This is not a perfect solution. There are no perfect solutions. And KKR is in the money business. So they're probably also going to be looking at profitability. And unless you're going to pay people less or somehow make books make more money, you probably have to pay fewer people. Um, So I would imagine that we will see some layoffs at Simon & Schuster over time. when Jeff and I had this conversation the first time around last week, one of the things that we were kicking around is like, if you wanted to avoid layoffs, but also somehow become more profitable, what else could you do? And like, one of my things was like, well, they could, you know, you could really like take a red pen to book advances, like most books that get million dollar plus advances don't earn out. What does a deeper analysis of those financial risks look like? Um, If they were going to continue doing big advances like that, then you could squeeze the mid list, you could publish fewer mid list books. And nobody really wants that to happen. We don't want fewer books out in the world. We don't want less opportunity for authors. But and like an anecdote that I've told probably a dozen times 
on this show over the years was having sat in a sales meeting Mm -hmm. with a senior editor several years ago and going through a catalog and then kind of like, I I remember pointing to a title and being like, well, that's really interesting. Could we talk about an ad campaign around that book? And them saying, well, we don't have any budget for that one. And I must have made some kind of face. And the person was like, well, sometimes we just have to let junior editors acquire something so they have something to work on. (laughs) And like, that is one of the more cynical responses. But like folks in publishing want to publish books. (laughs) And they want to publish books that might not be profitable. They want to publish things that they know won't be profitable. Um, I don't think it's necessarily bad to have somebody like put on the green visor and start going through the finances um, with a an outside perspective. Because um, publishing has done things the same way for a really long time. And if the activists inside and around publishing are to be believed, that way is broken. <laughs> so yeah. what are some, what are what some other ways? <laughs> Yeah, Um, I think there is there are a lot of pieces to this. Like the other thing I've been really thinking about and that I told Jeff last week was I went and Googled, you know, I was trying to find like, has someone done a deep dive on how publishing has changed in the 10 years since Penguin and Random House merged? And first Mm -hmm. of all, it's been 10 years. The face I just made. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) Yeah, that happened in 2013. So welcome to how time functions. Um, I couldn't find anything. And I don't know, you know, I don't want to take absence of proof as proof of absence. Um, We know that there have been changes. We know that there have been layoffs. Um, Maybe that data is just too hard to get for someone to say, here's how many books they published each year when they were Penguin and Random House separately. Here's what's happened now that they're together. What I do know is there are still too many books. (laughs) Like, there are more books than anybody can read in any given year. And so I'm personally not terribly concerned that any decrease in the amount of books published that KKR, you know, institutes with Simon & Schuster as a way to make it more profitable will be something that readers feel. Um, If we're talking about the state of being a reader, will this impact your life as a reader? Probably not, is my first approximation of a guess. yeah. Yeah, speaking as, I mean, yeah, somebody who constantly looks for new releases to have to talk about them on a podcast, like there is, there, like you said, there's just more books out there than you could ever, 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 ever calculate in your brain. Like, I do not think as a reader, I'm, I'm, I'm like, very positive that you would not feel that difference. But, you know, <laughs> folks with a certain attachment and awe to the life of publishing probably don't like want to hear that. And I get it. But again, mm. com- complicated. <laughs> Yeah. And like for as long as art and commerce are mixed, it's going to be complicated. Absolutely. Yep. That is the perfect distillation. We will take one last break and then we're going to talk about some weirdness (laughs) on book talk. (laughs) You know, Vanessa, I love you (laughs) and I am a little bit sad that I'm not getting to make Jeff have this conversation (laughs) with me. I am myself like yeah I'm upset that I'm the one here to talk to you about this mostly because like the idea of getting to listen to Jeff talk about it is a thing I feel I've robbed the people of um so I'm so sorry but here we are okay yeah so why don't you tell us what what happened with hockey romance readers what's going on so I'm looking at a different piece than Rebecca was looking at um, because I accidentally closed that tab, I think. So I'm looking at one from The Cut um, by Andrea Gonzalez Ramirez that is, I'm just going to read you this title, The Smutty Hockey Drama Melting Down Book Talk. And that is <laughs> essentially where we are at. Um, so for those who don't know, 
hockey romance is a whole thing. It's it's a big kind of subset of the romance genre. We've got some really great pieces on the site about it that we can link to um, by Jess Pride and I think Trisha as well that are all about like what what's the genre about? Here's the books about it. It is a thriving subgenre. Folks love them. Some hockey smut and it goes mm-hmm. everywhere from, you know, runs the gamut on spiciness, etc. Great. So um, the issue here is that the Specifically, there's a, a player on the Seattle Kraken named Alex Wenberg, who became like a TikTok darling, to put it very cleanly, uh, when one TikToker in particular made like a video and that then blew up and create, you know, made lots of people essentially do the same thing about how hot this guy is and essentially sort of, what's the word they use in this piece? Like face claimed him? I think is the term I keep seeing uh, as like the face cringing. of their hockey road. <laughs> but I, I, when I looked, I, I didn't want to look it up because I was scared of what it would do to my algorithm and like safety of my work owned <laughs> computer. So valid. Um, <laughs> um, so, but that's basically what it was. And it got to the point where, you know, so in this video, she's saying some things that I will not say on this podcast. Mm-mm. And I really wish Jeff could. Um, it's a family show, my friends. Family show. <laughs> um, but that, yeah, that are very, very sexual in nature. And it blew up. So the the other complicated piece of this is that it blew up to the point where the Seattle Kraken noticed it and also was sort of capitalizing it, to be fair. Like they were also posting like very <laughs> slowed down, like edited videos of this player, Alex Wenberg, that and then, you know, included like the book talk hashtag and I think even converted the account at one point to say like mostly book talk because they were fully aware that the the hockey romance loving internet was all about this guy and his wife too was aware of it and they were like okay with it for a bit because it was all sort of in good fun at first seattle mm-hmm. kraken invites this person um the, the tiktoker to their games like to the stanley cup um they get her like a jersey i mean it's a whole thing like everybody's kind of in on the joke and then the stuff that's being said about this guy and then <laughs> gets really gross really fast yeah <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> yeah uh, i'm gonna let you chime in a little okay here. yeah oh you're gonna make me do this part thank you <laughs> hashtag crack my back i mean you did say face claiming for us so yeah. you've done your you've done your I work for the day i did it uh, it's so early still on the West Coast, and you just get to be done now. That's great. So what what happened here is this went from good natured ish, like we love these books, and here's this real life hot hockey player that we're imagining as the face of these books that we love into um, hockey romance fans going to hockey games and shouting. I mean, the things that they were shouting are sexual harassment. <laughs> like, it, they like, are the kinds stop. of things yeah. that are like stereotypical comments, like of the flavor that in in the most stereotypical arrangement possible, like a construction worker would shout at a woman walking down the street. Like, yeah. none of it is Which none is of what it his is wife acceptable. points out, right? <laughs> like, right. Yeah, like, so. yeah, none of it's acceptable. And they were making these comments like on his Instagram, on her Instagram, really like crossed the breach from a playful, you know, sort of fandom appreciation of these books and this person into like, they just, they crossed the breach from fiction to reality. Um, And I think did not consider that the people on the other end were real people. Like, 
I have a lot of just like, oh, can we have some dignity here, ladies? Yeah. Um, reactions to this. Like, it's a very small group of people. You know, romance is a huge community with a lot of diverse and like niche sub communities within it. This is a very small group of people that are behaving yeah. badly, but they're behaving really, really badly. And the like the soapbox I got on about this when Jeff and I were talking, he was like, he thought he was going to make it out of the episode without having to talk about this. And I was like, no, no, I need my soapbox. <laughs> I think you're on the soapbox with me, Vanessa, is that romance has spent decades defending itself yes. from these very wrongheaded public perceptions that romance, that there was like something wrong with romance readers, yeah. you know, that like, if you were yep. into that kind of book, something was going sideways. And like that, that's not true. Romance is wonderful. It's valid. The vast majority of the people who read and enjoy it are healthy and normal and all of those things. And they understand the divide between fiction and reality. Like that's one of the common like people who are trying to kind of straw man about the the quote unquote problems with romance. One of the common things they toss up is like, oh, it gives it gives readers like unrealistic expectations about what relationships are like and what oh, sex buddy. is like and all these things. And like they can't tell the difference between fiction and reality. And I, I think really these folks just got carried away. I would bet these readers really do know the difference between fiction and reality, but they were having fun and they took it too far. And then when they got called out on it, they doubled down. I'm like, no, I'm going to be here and I'm going to say these things and I'm going to like defend myself. And it's this would be unfortunate and really unacceptable no matter what genre or what community it happened in. Yeah. But I extra hate to see it happen to romance because romance is the genre that has spent a lot of its life defending itself against these kinds of ideas that like this is what the readers are like. Um like, like everybody just be cool. Let's not make sexual comments to people that yeah. they haven't consented to participate in. <laughs> yeah, and it's super weird that it was happening like in person and like the pictures yeah, of yeah. their kids it's, and stuff. It's just like, it's, like is it be, be cool, be chill. Just, what are you doing? Well, yeah, lines were crossed. This is not okay. And the thing that I really kept coming back to is if we flipped the genders here yeah. and this is these are heteronormative interactions so i'm going to go that way with my gender flip yeah and we were talking about like a bunch of male readers who enjoyed women's soccer romances showing up at a women's soccer game shouting sexual remarks we wouldn't have to think twice <laughs> no. about how this was a problem and this was harassment and it was unacceptable and like that it just remains unacceptable no matter what. Romance is about empowering readers, particularly empowering women. And this is not what empowerment looks like. This is not what we've been working for with feminism, friends. <laughs> I just... That was the I feel... part that I felt really bummed about when I was online, um, like as I was watching as this was sort of playing out, mm. is that like, uh, you know, the, the discourse quickly went from the very like valid recognition that this is sexual harassment that like once someone it's 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 about consent right like once someone yeah. says hey stop like the it, the answer is to stop like etc but it quickly devolved into the piling on to like can we all i kept seeing tweets that, like can we all just agree that you know romance readers are is all just thinly veiled you know pornographic mm. material etc and like granted is there erotica and are there lots of romances that you know tend to the more like sexually explicit God? absolutely and that is perfect and fine and valid and then there's not and it quickly just became like a yeah a tear down of everything that romance and romance readers are that felt so 
backwards <laughs> from where I thought or hoped we were getting. Um, it was, and then the doubling. Da- yeah, there's so many yeah. pieces of this. It was like, this could have been like a cool, fun, easy little thing. And y'all still could have been showing up with your heart eye emojis over this, you know, ostensibly attractive man. But you had to make it weird. And Lord knows I wouldn't want someone coming into my job at Book Riot, opening the door, being like, hey, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, that's weird. <laughs> so, it is weird. Yeah. The, you know, and I understand why the hockey teams tried to capitalize on this. Like, hockey has a hard time attracting women to yeah. their fandom. And so it was, I think, pretty exciting when even like 15 or 30 women from TikTok started mm-hmm. showing up at some of these hockey games. But I think that was a mistake for them to try to get involved. And when Jeff and I talked about this in the recording that died, he um, was recalling there's an early episode of The West Wing where um, Josh finds out that there are women in an online forum talking about him in a flattering way, (laughs) like kind of writing sexy fanfic about him. And he goes in and tries to participate in it and learns pretty quickly in a pretty similar way to this. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You don't want to do that. So I think there's a lesson here for like this time around, it was a hockey team. But there's a lesson here for anybody who like, if you win the weird lottery, where folks online are like reading a book that's adjacent to your business, and somehow they start patronizing your business as well. (laughs) I think you just say thank you. And you take their dollars and you hope it doesn't get weird. And you definitely don't try to stoke it because that will just help it get weird faster. Yeah, please. That's let's please learn this lesson wider internet <laughs> it's there this was a spicy it was a spicy one but it mostly left me with a lot of like i'm your the internet's disappointed mom feelings you yeah. know like come no, on absolutely. y'all come let's on. let's do better um well before we get out of here vanessa let's do a little front list foyer have you been reading anything lately that you want to shout out yes i um for being on like a weird little slump feel like in the last like two weeks i just suddenly read a ton of books uh, which is great um i just finished wayward which is still frontless i think it actually came out a couple months ago but um by amelia hart and it's like a witchy intergenerational story that goes back to like witch trialy type times and then comes forward and it's sort of about a legacy of of magic and witchcraft and like oppression of women and uh, toxic masculinity. It, it's it was I, I don't know the cover had a crow on it and so that's really all it took for me <laughs> that's all um, <laughs> really uh, but I thought it was gonna be like a little bit lighter than it was and it ended up being this really deep like beautiful exploration of uh, yeah like the ways that women defend like yeah like women's not just friendship but yeah just the like again the analysis of what witchcraft like means <laughs> and like why <laughs> women have been painted as witches since you know time immemorial so it was really really fun um and then I just read The Trap by Catherine Ryan Howard, which mm. is definitely one of those that you don't want to read at night. And if you're a woman, like, is definitely not going <laughs> oh, to, like, give you I am safe in the world vibes. <laughs> but Okay. Um, As Barbie puts it, there's an undertone of violence. There is an undertone of violence. Yeah, the book opens with this really, like, terrifying little passage. But it's essentially about a, a woman whose sister disappeared many years ago. So she's, like, mm. one of our characters is trying to find her. There's another woman who works at a missing persons unit who may now have found a discovery about this girl and a bunch of other missing girls. And then there is a serial killer narrating like his justifications for things uh, like, and you can tell the, you quickly find out that he's telling these things to a woman who is in his trunk and Ooh. it gets, yeah, it is not a happy book. It is a thriller though. Like Catherine Ryan Howard's books are very page turny. And if you need something that will just like, yeah, get you in that place, this is it. Um, and then that just lastly, great. it's it's phenomenal, and it's it's a really good listen on audio too. If you have audio, 
Oh my and god, then, a scary book on audio. I no, can't. Uh, like, no. Jamie Canaves told me, like, don't listen to this, like, right before you go to bed. And I stupidly was like, it's, it's fine. We and never I got learn. Maybe 30 seconds and I stopped. And instead, in the morning, just because it definitely was making me do the look back and forth, like, is my door oh, locked no. kind of thing. Is there anyone um, under my bed? Correct. So there's that. But it is really, really good, as is her backlist pick, 56 Days. And then lastly, I just started reading Lone Women by Victor Laval, and I'm just super jazzed because of the Changeling adaptation that's coming. I loved and was equally terrified by the Changeling, and so I've finally started Lone Women, and it is really great so far. I'm not too far into it, but man, if you're not reading Victor Laval... I know. I think Jeff has said that's his favorite fiction experience of the year so far. Really? Ooh, uh, that's great. I wish... I wonder... Has he read The Changeling? That feels like a thing he couldn't read. I'm not sure. I don't think he has. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's what I'm lots lots of stuff going on over here. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I am uh, living in my personal Venn diagram with a book called The Sullivanians by uh, Alexander Steele, or still it's S T I L L E, which is about it's basically like not true crime. It feels like in the bad blood vein, but Ooh, it is about yeah. a psychotherapy cult that sprang up in New York's Upper West Side in the 60s and 70s that turned into like a weirdo sex cult because they always turn into weirdo sex cults. Oh, I'm writing that down. Okay, cool. Uh, But it's like these psychotherapists who were inspired by the work of Harry Stack Sullivan. That's why it's called the Sullivanians. Mm. But Harry Stack Sullivan had no part of it. They found this community group basically they start this community group where everyone is in the same kind of therapy with them Uh, and then if you've been in therapy long enough you can become a trainee and start seeing other clients none of this is like sanctioned by any governing body of psychotherapy or psychology or or anything it's just all coming down from the higher ups um, where they encourage everyone to like the whole thing is about like we heal and grow in community so you need to like live in community with other people that are going through the same therapy. So there are all these like same-sex apartments, people living with four or six or eight other people who are participating in this therapy. Uh, and then it builds into like, oh, it also turns out that your family is evil, especially your parents. So you should cut yourself off from them. But also you should make sure to get lots of money from them <laughs> to help this organization mm-hmm. do things. It it goes on for like decades. It lasted until 1991. And Steele has interviewed people who were involved with it early on and at the weirdest points and then who stuck around for like the last decade as it was petering out. And it is just I mean, like, It's wild in kind of the predictable ways that a story about a cult is wild, but the specifics of any story like this are the thing that make it interesting. And this one is, I mean, just kind of exactly what I want from like, wow, look at the things people did. Um, So I I just finished that over the weekend and just like, oh, boy, if you like a cult story, here's a good one for you. (laughs) Love me some cult stories. Well, there you go. Vanessa, thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, Folks, you can find all the links that we talked about in the show notes at bookriot.com slash listen. You can subscribe to Literary Activism at literaryactivism.substack.com. If you want to subscribe to Book Riot's deep dive substack, that is bookriot.substack.com. You can read a piece Vanessa wrote recently about the weirdest moments of her life as a managing editor, including having to ask herself, is this piece of fruit, is this picture of a piece of fruit too sexy for the internet? <laughs> love my job. I really love my job. True stories. <laughs> Was a pleasure having you here, Vanessa. Thank you so Thanks much. Again. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you.